With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the Agnet News Hour. Coming up later, a Siskiyou County ranch is recognized for environmental stewardship, and the EPA updates its efforts to address the Endangered Species Act parameters. But we start with this week's Chill Hour report. Here's Brian German. In this week's California Chill Hour report brought to you by Dormex. Wake up your buds with Dormex. UC Cooperative Extension Orchard Systems Advisor Kat Jarvis-Sheehan shared some of the details of a multi-year trial looking at chill accumulation in walnut trees. So for a couple of years we've been doing this trial on the UC Davis campus where we heat up trees to simulate warmer winters and then apply dormancy breaking treatments to see what we got a reaction with. And we found with that that certainly with hydrogen cyanamide, which is on the market right now as Dormex, among other things, and CAN-17 and Erger, we can stimulate earlier bud break using those. But by the nature of the setup of that experiment, we couldn't look at yield. So we expanded this past year, so like the winter 22-23 and the spring of 23, to spray Dormex and CAN-17, Dormex at two concentrations, 2% and 4%, on two production orchards. And it was an interesting year to do it felt going into it sort of like a wasted year because we had so much chill last winter. But it's a good one to have in the data set, you know, because growers are going to want to know, all right, do I just apply this in a low chill year or does it actually have some benefits in a high chill year also? While still early in the overall scope of the trial and looking to get several years of data, Jarvis Sheehan detailed some of the most recent findings with particular interest in how older walnut orchards responded to treatments. Growers are making these decisions in real time, so we try to share the data as we have it. But as a scientist, I would say the more years of data we have around this, the more certain I will be about what is a smart course of action for growers. But since growers need to make some decisions now, I'll say that we got a little more than 70 chill portions up north at one of our sites, and we saw a very small but not significant increase in yield from using Dormex at 2%, 4%, and CAN-17 at 20% relative to doing nothing. I think that was a consistent enough increase. The stats didn't pick it out, but I think with more years of data, we'll probably be able to pick out that signal. And that was in a really healthy, robust orchard that's something like 10 years old, very vigorous already. So I would say in that situation, if we're in a really robust chill year like in the past, given the price of walnuts, I don't know that it pencils out to apply Dormax in a high chill year in a healthy orchard. What was more interesting was we worked at the Nichols Soils Lab in a block that had been declining in yield, that was tightly spaced, that had a lot of limb dieback, and we definitely saw an increase in yield at 4% Dormax that was significant. And a slight increase in yield also at 2% that was not big enough for the stats to pick out, but I think is indicative of what we'll be able to pick out in the future with more data. And that had a lot of lower limb dieback, had a lot of botrysphyria, so it was sort of settled into a lower bud break scenario. And my thinking is that we got some additional bud break to sort of wake those trees out of kind of a slumber. What we'll need to see this year is whether we can continue that increase in yield or whether that higher yield actually overtaxed these trees that are just already very stressed and that's why they're generally yielding poorly. 
So we are seeing some effects. If there's enough effect, I would say, that it warrants some people with larger acreage starting to play around with this as a tool on their own. And we'll have better understanding of really how to hone in on optimizing it as a tool if we can get a few more years of data. And information from the UC Davis Chill Calculator shows that as of February 20th, the Shafter Simis Station has logged 55.9 portions under the dynamic model with 770 hours below 45 degrees. The station in five points has registered 59.5 portions with 778 hours. There have been 947 hours in Merced with 61.3 cumulative portions. In Manteca, there have been 719 chill hours, equating to 61.9 portions. Finally, the Simis Station in Durham has registered 67.6 portions with 871 hours. And this has been the California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Tune in again next week for another episode. Two Asian region markets are seen as success stories in the diversification of our country's diversification of ag export opportunities. Rod Bain has more. The Friday morning panel discussion at the USDA Ag Outlook Forum focused on diversification of ag export opportunities. At ground-level examples were provided by U.S. ambassadors to two expanding export nations. Philippine total agricultural imports have nearly tripled over the past decade, and the United States remains the top single country supplier. Philippines Ambassador Mary Kay Carlson notes her nation is now ninth among U.S. ag export destinations globally. One spot behind the nation of Vietnam. And according to that country's U.S. Ambassador Mark Knapper, the U.S. exports goods to Vietnam, which Vietnam easily cannot produce itself, which also support its own economy. Products like wheat, soybeans, cotton, dairy products. For reference, the Philippines and Vietnam ranked 20 years ago as U.S. ag export markets 14th and 51st, respectively. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's national spotlight, agriculture groups around the nation responded to the EPA's decision to allow farmers to use existing stocks of dicamba for the upcoming planting season. The American Farm Bureau Federation sent a letter to EPA that read, quote, We are grateful to EPA for hearing farmers and ranchers' concerns and addressing them quickly to ensure we have access to the critical tools needed to protect our crops this season. Agriculture Retailers Association President and CEO Darren Kopik said in a statement, ARA is extremely grateful for the quick action taken by EPA to issue an existing stocks order for the dicamba product registrations vacated by the federal court in Arizona. He noted ARA's consistent position has been that absent an EPA order allowing for the limited sale, distribution, and use of existing stocks, there will be unnecessary chaos and economic harm to agricultural retailers, distributors, and the farmers they serve. The Agriculture Department recently released the latest editions of its 10-year ag production and economic projections. Yet, what were some of the key findings? Here's Rod Bain. Required by law. Used for guidance. USDA's annual 10-year baseline projections for agriculture. If it's for anything requiring a long-term projection for multiple years, that's when we would use it. So if there's any projection, whether it's internal budget staff or if different agencies wanted to make a projection that use the prices and production levels we have, that's where they would come from. There's no other source within USDA for 10-year projections. 
Joe Cooper is with USDA's Office of the Chief Economist. Recently, the department issued its annual 10-year ag projections, with those going out to the year 2033. What are some of USDA's agricultural projections going out over the next 10 years? For macroeconomic assumptions, economic growth remains positive over the projection period, but the global growth rates still kind of contract over the long term compared to before. But negative ramifications for Russia's war on Ukraine are diminishing. The food and energy prices have come down from wartime heights. In terms of long-term projections for various commodities. Across the board, crop prices are falling from the 23-24 crop year before leveling out into the end of the projection period in 2033. Production for all main animal products rise over the projection period. With prices for meat products expected to vary during the 10-year projection period. Production is expected to achieve record levels at some point during the coming decade for all products except turkey. Nominal prices for cattle are expected to be lower at the end of the projection period than in 2023. We'll see some initial falling from our highs we had in 22, 23, and then increasing again in the middle years. Broiler farm prices will increase slightly while hog prices decline almost continuously over that period. Egg prices are projected to drop from 2023 as the industry recovers from avian influenza. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, whole milk in schools is gaining momentum. Michael Clements shares more. For more than a decade, Congress has prevented U.S. public schools from serving whole and 2% milk to students. Now parents, physicians, dietitians, and the dairy community are pushing back, and Congress is listening. Matt Herrick, a senior vice president at the International Dairy Foods Association, says new legislation that would reinstate whole and 2% milk back in schools is gaining momentum. The legislation is the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act, and what it's really about is allowing schools to serve children the nutritious varieties of milk that they already can consume at home. So we know that since these milk options were removed from school meals, that's whole and 2% milk, children are not drinking as much milk. They're not eating their meals with the same level of frequency. They're not consuming the necessary nutrients that they need. And as a result, they're throwing away more food. So we're seeing an increase of food waste. At the same time, the science around the nutrition of dairy fats has changed dramatically in the last decade. So we now know, for instance, that full fat dairy products like whole milk are actually beneficial to kids because they lower the risk of heart disease and they lower childhood obesity. So bringing these milk varieties back to schools is a no-brainer. The International Dairy Foods Association released new polling of parents who are near unanimous in their support of the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act. Herrick says parents are key to making sure the bill passes Congress this year. Our new polling for Morning Consult tells us that 94% of parents out there serve their children whole or 2% milk at home. And that's because they consider milk to be healthy, they see it as nutritious, it's wholesome, it tastes good. Nine in 10 parents said that they want to see whole and 2% milk reinstated in school meals. And the same amount want to see Congress pass legislation that restores whole and 2% milk in schools. So 
it's really overwhelming support from parents who are really the most important voice about what kids should be eating in schools that want to see whole and 2% milk restored. It's near unanimous support. Herrick says that IDFA and the dairy community need the support of all stakeholders to get the bill passed during this calendar year. Our team really is bringing this polling information and the strong science underpinning our arguments to Capitol Hill directly. So we are talking to legislators. We're talking to our members. We're asking them to advocate by sending letters and emails and text messages to members of Congress, to their staff, directly to those members. All of that work has paid off in December. The House of Representatives passed this bill by a wide margin, 330 to 99. We're hopeful we can get that same level of support in the Senate. So we're asking folks out there to submit these letters, to contact your members of Congress. And you can do that by going to our website, wholemilkforkids.com. You can fill out a very quick pre-filled form. It'll submit a letter to whoever represents your state or your district, letting them know that you support this bill and you want them to support this bill too. Again, that website is wholemilkforkids.com. Michael Clements reporting. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. Funding from the National Institute of Food and Agriculture is helping to supplement projects supported by the Pistachio Research Board. Nut crops breeder at UC Davis, Pat Brown, explains some of the projects they're able to work on thanks to the support from the Specialty Crop Research Initiative. So one of them is deficit irrigation. So how much can we cut back on irrigation and when to maintain yield sort of long term over multiple years? We're also looking at basically a yield sensor. So trying to develop something that could be attached to existing harvesting equipment and would give the grower sort of a nice color-coded map of their orchard showing how much they harvested and where, sort of as a way to help identify potential problems or you know maybe where to concentrate various inputs within their orchards. Those are two of the big ones. Last week during the World Ag Expo, more than 1,400 exhibitors displayed some of the latest and greatest in farm equipment, communications, and technology on 2.6 million square feet of exhibit space. Mike Newland with the Propane Education and Research Council highlighted some of the offerings they were featuring during the expo and what seems to be getting a significant amount of attention from industry members. We do have a lot of equipment on site today. So we've got folks from Renai talking about new uh, generation water heaters, uh, gas water heaters that can be used on the farm as well as residential settings. We've got a number of irrigation engines on the property today from various vendors that are, uh, you know, important to this market in California, but also across the country as you look through the Corn Belt down to the southeast uh, parts of the U.S. as well. You know, not everybody wants to run uh, irrigation on electricity, and especially where we're standing today, that's a bigger issue. You know, fire season, the, the electricity companies out this way tend to shut the power off, and if you happen to be in a critical spot for your crop, that's, that's not a great situation. So, you know, we think propane, especially here in this state, but also across the Midwest, makes a lot of sense. It's a very effective way of running irrigation. It's very clean fuel. We don't have spill problems. If we do have a, a leak or a, a spill of some type, uh, there's no containment issue. There's no remediation issues. That product just goes away naturally. So we think it's a really good uh, situation. 
and we talk about it in California, but also it's stored energy, you know. We love talking about being able to control your farm and what happens on your farm yourself. And once you have that tank full of propane, you get to do with it what you want when you want to do it. Several geopolitical factors are having a negative impact on agriculture. Rabobank's Roland Fumasi highlighted the ongoing global conflicts creating challenges for the food and ag sector. We've been covering and following the impacts of the Russia-Ukraine situation. Now the situation over in the Middle East. We've got some things happening in the Red Sea that we know have created an increase in logistical costs. Some shippers really trying to avoid that waterway altogether, uh, which adds cost to journeys for products. And depending on the specific ag sector, those impacts are different. But I will say generally all those situations create uncertainty. So that's always a challenge. We in Food and Ag like to be able to have as clear a vision as we can of the future. And when you've got all of these geopolitical tensions around the world, it gets tougher to do that, tougher to manage risk, etc. EPA announced its plan to safeguard endangered species from pesticide exposure, emphasizing the importance of balancing ecological conservation with agricultural needs. Historically, the EPA has faced challenges in aligning pesticide registration under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act with the mandates of the Endangered Species Act. This discrepancy has led to legal disputes, uncertainty for farmers, and delays in species protection. To address these concerns, EPA introduced its ESA work plan in April 2022, proposing initiatives like the Vulnerable Species Pilot Project. However, stakeholder concerns prompted the EPA to refine its strategies, expand collaboration with the USDA, and enhance species mapping accuracy. Additionally, EPA has signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the USDA to integrate voluntary conservation practices into pesticide labels. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association honored six top cattle operations at the Environmental Stewardship Award Program. NCBA President Todd Wilkinson commended the operations for their unwavering commitment to environmental stewardship. Hart Ranch, a cow-calf operation in Montague, received the Region 6 Award covering California, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Nevada. Established in 1991, the award program recognizes outstanding land stewards in the cattle industry. Hart Ranch, founded in 1852, focuses on sustainable stewardship, balancing economically viable ranching with wildlife habitat enrichment. Their efforts include improving water efficiency, soil health and fish habitat, as well as integrating sustainable timber management and grazing practices for carbon sequestration. Partnerships with organizations and agencies have played a pivotal role in the ranch's conservation initiatives. Sales account manager for AgroLiquid, Dylan Rogers, joins us today to talk about fertilizer timing in almonds. So just kind of a 30,000-foot bird's-eye view of a fertilizer timing in almonds. We'll be getting started here in the next few weeks with bloom sprays. That'll generally be the first fertility application. A lot of times that's going to be micronutrients, a lot of zinc, uh, boron, some calcium, products like that. Uh, Those will go in bloom sprays. And then also important to note that a lot of times when these trees are waking up and starting to bloom and starting to leaf out, they're they're not pulling a lot of nutrients out of the soil. They're working on reserves from last season. Um, Once you get some leaf out, you'll start to see guys, you know, either, you know, maybe make a a phosphorus application. Those trees are leafing out. They're also producing feeder roots below the soil level. So important to have phosphorus in place for those roots to get a good, healthy start. Next, you'll start to see some nitrogen applications 
uh, startup, you know, early leaf out, and those will continue through, you know, late May, early June at the latest. Those oftentimes go hand in hand with uh, potassium applications. So uh, a nitrogen application may, you know, get potassium in the tank as well. Throughout the season, guys are making multiple trips through the field, uh, spraying fungicides, stuff like that. So a lot of times there'll be some sort of nutrition in the tank. A lot of times that'll be micronutrients. Come later on the season, uh, when you're starting to, to get nut fill and push that crop towards the end, potassium is very important to get that nut fill. So a lot of times guys will finish up their nitrogen applications and everything will switch over to solely potassium from that point on. So again, just a general bird's eye view of a, a fertilizer timing uh, and almonds, important to to talk to your trusted crop advisor to get a nailed in, dialed in plan. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. The results are now available for the latest edition of USDA's Census of Agriculture, the nation's most comprehensive study of farming and ranching. What do the results say about how many farmers there are, who they are, and what they raise? Rod Bain looks at some of the data points for the 2022 Census of Ag in this edition of Agriculture USA. Five years in the making, plus an additional year-plus period to crunch all the data. The result? The results found within USDA's 2022 Census of Agriculture. It allows us to take a snapshot in time, allows us to compare what has occurred over the five-year period, and begin to ask ourselves questions about the policy formation and the direction that we need to take in order to correct or deal with some of the challenges that the data presents. I'm Rod Bain. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack and others join us as we look at some of the major points of interest within the latest edition of the Census of Agriculture in this edition of Agriculture USA. Over 6 million data points about our nation's farms and ranches and those who operate them down to the county level. That is the makeup of the foremost agricultural information resource in the U.S., the 2022 Census of Agriculture. Every five years, USDA conducts the census with months of enumerating responses and crunching the figures to present the snapshot in time that is farming and ranching in the end of 2022. Among the findings of note, two particular data points that raise the concern of Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. Survey after survey continues to show a decline in the number of farms and in the farmland. In 2017, when we did the survey, there were 2,042,220 farms. Today, the survey reports we have 1,900,487 farms. That's 142,000 fewer farms in five years. In 2017, we had almost, well, a little over 900 million acres of land and farming. Five years later, we have 880 million acres. So we've lost 20 million acres. What has also been a concerning data trend throughout recent censuses of agriculture, the increasing average age of farm producers in our country. Brian Combs of USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service notes that found in the 2022 census. Overall average of all producers at 58.1. At a six-month increase from the 2017 census of agriculture, that is a smaller census-to-census rise in average producer age than seen in recent surveys. However, the demographic category of new and beginning and young farmers draw interest from various data points. 
For instance, the young producer is anyone who is involved in farm decision making under the age of 35 as of December the 31st, 2022. And the census shows that 296,480 young producers were reported. There was also an 11 percent increase in the number of beginning farmers from the 2017 census. When looking at beginning farmers within the latest census from an average age standpoint, the average age of these new and beginning producers is 47.1, which is lower than the overall average of all producers. And within the total number of ag producers in the U.S., 30 percent of producers were considered new and beginning for the 2022 census of agriculture. An additional demographic data point, female producers accounted for 36 percent of all producers. 58 percent of farms have at least one female producer. What does ag production look like according to the 2022 Census of Agriculture? Brian Combs starts with this. The total value of production increased almost 40% from 2017 to 2022. That was up to $543 billion from $389 billion in 2017. Crop sales accounted for 52% of that value in 2022, and those were up 45% from 2017. Livestock sales also increased, and they were up 35% from 2017. The census also indicates farm production expenses came in at $424 billion in 2017. 2022. As a result, net income from farms between 2017 and 2022 increased by $36.7 billion, or 72% since 2017. And a total of 43% of farms had positive net cash farm income in 2022. With so much information to share from the latest census of ag, Combs acknowledges release of various census-oriented reports will take place throughout the coming year. That includes further data on two new categories in the census series. The precision ag question was new. We'll be looking at that in combination with other data points to discover more about what those operations look like. 2022 is the first time that hemp was asked as an individual crop. NASA is planning on producing some additional information on hemp that will be released in the fall. Likewise, more exploration of the 2022 Census of Agriculture will take place in future programs. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. In this week's Almond Matters, brought to you by Valent USA, a break in the rain should offer growers a good opportunity to address disease concerns. Here's Brian German. In this week's Almond Matters segment, we've got Todd Berktall here with us once again. He's a field market development specialist with Valent USA. And now, Todd, looks like we've got another week of intermittent storms. And so uh, what's that mean for uh, maybe putting a pause on some things out there in orchards uh, with bloom already going? Nobody's going to be able to do anything until after it clears rain, and even then it's going to be pretty wet. So getting in the fields is going to be difficult. The weather's kind of slowed down the bloom a little bit on almonds, but I mean, it's still coming. And uh, I haven't actually been out today or yesterday it was raining, so I was staying inside. But as soon as the rain quits, everybody's going to be spraying, you know, for uh, bloom, protecting the blossoms, you know. I would expect if we have any clearing, but it's supposed to rain again next weekend again. Saturday, Saturday, Sunday is what they're talking, so. I don't know. I mean, maybe one of those years where if you can get in, but I think aerial applications, you know, are probably going to be utilized more just because you can't get in the fields, it's going to be too wet. If you can get good coverage with aerial, I mean, right now, you know, you don't have a lot of leaves to intercept. So aerial applications can be, you know, a good alternative to getting something on. 
But if you put it on something before this rain, you know, usually you've got about a good 10 to 14 days of, of, of activity with most products. I don't know what people are using, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of good fungicides out there today because of combination products, group seven, group 11s that work pretty effectively at, you know, preventative applications. So you should be okay if you got something on before. If you didn't get anything on before the rain, then you need to get something on as soon as possible or as soon as you can get back in. And an aerial application may be that, you know, that a good option for that. It's more expensive, but in certain cases, it may be the only option, you know. And are these rainstorms uh, going to have any real impact on the progression of the bloom itself, or is it more just uh, what growers are able to, to get done out there? I don't think so. Usually when it starts, it keeps going, you know. It might slow it down a little bit, but usually when it starts, it's it's already, you know, once you get to bud break, it, it takes off. It may, you know, be slowed down a little bit, but it's still going to come. So, I mean, the key right now is going to be to get in there and protect protect the bloom after after, after you can get into, you know, so you don't lose everything to, to blossom line because the potentials there is fairly warm. It's, you know, it's not cold. It's coming directly out of the Pacific, so it's warmer, uh, warmer moisture, and that's conducive to disease. It's almost ideal. You got moisture, you got disease triangle, you know, you got the host, the pathogen, and the environment, and the environment's definitely going to be conducive to disease, um, primarily monolinea, blossom blight, but also there's other things that can happen there too. So, I mean, getting something on there to protect the bloom is going to be critical. Most guys did it already. They anticipated the rain coming, so. But people who didn't uh, need to get it done are going to need to get in there as soon as possible to stop it from, you know, destroying everything, especially on more susceptible varieties. You know, some, I don't, I don't know if there's more susceptible. I think just the environment's really, really critical. You know, and the environment's conducive to disease. It's gonna, it's, you know, it will happen. And now, aside from uh, the potential for disease, uh, does rain at this point in the season, with uh, the temperatures we've been having and, and some of those inabilities of, of getting into the orchard, uh, is that going to have any kind of uh, impact on uh, weed or pest pressures maybe later on? It's cooler still, you know, so as far as pest, as far as insect pest goes, it's, it's going to be somewhat still stifled. Biggest thing is getting into fruit set, you know, getting good pollination. And bees don't fly when it's raining. And... You know, if it gets down below 55, pollen tubes don't grow, and so you've got that issue as well. So this could definitely affect the overall fruit set for for almonds this year as well. You know, because everything's starting to everything as of last Friday was starting to pop pretty good, and uh, I didn't get out yesterday or today, so I, I can give you, but I don't think everything's I don't think anything has progressed that much said if you had something on before the rain you're good if you didn't have it on you need to get on there get in there and get it on as soon as possible as soon as you can get back in the fields and a good preventative is probably a contact fungicide as well maybe a tank mix you know there's some phd uh pretty good contact material coupled out with you know a preventative fungicide and there's like again there's a several of them out there that would work to prevent you know this total spread of uh, we'll be right back you are listening to the Agnet News Hour now for more news. The Agriculture Secretary recently explained how a circular ag economy could provide not only financial, but social benefits to rural America. Rod Bain reports. The theme of the 100th USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum was cultivating the future. 
That theme has also been a focal point of Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack's concept of a cyclical economic model for agriculture, best illustrated in what is known as his whiteboard presentation. However, beyond the economic potential, the secretary notes the significance of how this could improve the social connections in rural America. It's not just about small and mid-sized producers, as important as they are. It's not just about maintaining populations in small communities, as important as that is for rural education, for small businesses, for quality health care in rural places. It's about making sure that we have sufficient numbers of people living in those communities that understand and appreciate and live every single day community. He acknowledges that in several parts of our country, there is perhaps a lost sense of community. Yet in rural America, community remains an integral part of the social fabric. He offered an example during his Ag Outlook Forum speech to illustrate community strengthened through a value-added economic approach. I was in Colorado recently, was talking to a farmer, and he told me that in the 1980s, his family, it's a livestock operation, had to give up the capacity to actually produce livestock, their cattle operation, because of the difficulties we experienced. Family land, however, was retained through enrollment in USDA's Conservation Reserve Program. When the young farmer came of age, he decided to revive the family cattle operation. But he was smart enough to realize that he couldn't do it the way it had always been done. He knew that he had to create a more direct connection between his cattle and his customers. Income was generated via a local and regional food system. The sense of community kicked in when the small, local meat processor that served the Colorado farmer was set to close down. But because of a USDA program, this farmer said, hey, I'll take a leap. I'll buy that processing facility. I'll invest in it. I'll expand it. Why? Not just for my operation, but I know my neighbors depend on it. And I now can have an opportunity to profit not just from production, but also processing. And so can my neighbors can get a better price, a higher price, a better deal, because we're neighbors, because that's what we do. The result of this farmer's efforts. That small and mid-sized producer understood the value of value added, understood the necessity of figuring out ways in which his operation, as small and mid-sized as it was, could stay in business. He figured out multiple streams of revenue, but he did it in a way that reinforced community. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Getting equipment ready for the rush of spring planting can be a big chore. Chad Smith has more. Greg Jones, Global Field Engineering Manager for Firestone Ag, says it's important that farmers properly set up their tractors. The reason it's important is because what you're going to lose, if you don't have a proper set up tractor, you're going to spend more time in the field and you're going to burn more fuel. And that's not a good thing. What goes with that is the wear to the tire. You have possible damage. So those things are really the reason why you want to have a proper set up tractor. And then the last thing is if you do it right, you're going to promote a good crop. And that's really what we're trying to do. The lowest possible inflation pressure minimizes that compaction and improves the growth of the roots and the soil and then the moisture that can get to those roots. That's the key to why you want to do this. Jones talks about when farmers should check out or change their tractor setup. These tractors are expensive, so what they try to do is get the most amount of work out of these tractors. So they could go from something like they're doing row crop, and then they go to tillage, and then they go to harvest. There's different things or different applications that they use it. So anytime you're changing your application, 
application, you're going from maybe a three point to a draw bar, or you're going from tillage to planting, a change in the way you use that equipment is an opportunity for you to at least do a check. How you use that equipment and the way it's set up for that purpose in that attachment can change the way you need to set the tractor up. There are key steps to take when setting up a tractor. The first thing you're going to need to do is identify what kind of tractor do you have. Do you have a two-wheel drive, a mechanical front-wheel drive, or do you have a four-wheel drive articulating tractor? All you really need to know is the horsepower. But on the two-wheel drive and the four-wheel drive, it's the PTO horsepower. And on the four-wheel drive articulating, it's the engine horsepower. Then we can calculate a theoretical tractor weight. Once you have that total weight, then you can go in and do the weight split. The next step is to weigh the tractor. If you don't have access to scales, then maybe you have access to your local grain elevator. If not, then your closest Firestone dealer could help. That's going to tell us how we need to set the tractor up. Once we have that weight and then we have the theoretical split, then we can kind of see where do we need to take on weight or where do we need to take off weight. Once that's complete, then you can go into the setup for the inflation pressure. Once we do all that, everything's set from the standpoint of going through all the steps. Farmers can ensure they aren't overloading their tires when setting up their tractors. The best way is knowing the low capacity of the tires, which is on the sidewall. You can read that. You need to know the implement or the equipment that you're going to be using from that standpoint. That can also help you understand what kind of load am I putting on my tires. You can always reach out to your local Firestone Ag dealer or our field engineering hotline, and we can help do those calculations for you if you don't feel comfortable to do that. The biggest thing is just understanding the equipment and the weight that you're using on that equipment. Farmers can consult their local Firestone Ag dealer, local implement dealers, and videos on the Firestone Ag YouTube page. The field engineer hotline number is 800-847-3364. Chad Smith reporting. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.